Well, it, it's good to be back. It's, it's been 11 weeks. I know I came back in July uh, for one Sunday. Um, but it's, it's good to be back. And, and this morning, and really the last couple of weeks, I've uh, just been filled with a, a spirit of gratitude, um, a thankfulness uh, to uh, you as the church and to the elders for, for time away, uh, for rest, uh, time with my family, time with my kids uh, that uh, never have had before like that. It was, you know, in fact, a few weeks there at the beginning, I was like, how do I, you know, how do, I do this, not going to work and stuff like normal? And, um, and so a great joy to be able to, to read, um, a great joy to, to spend time with, with my wife and, and just to enjoy um, family time, uninterrupted, unrushed, having to go here and there. And so that, that was just, that was precious uh, to us. Uh, we did get to go to some, some churches while we were out. Um, my wife and I have, have talked about this often. Uh, we are not big fans of church hopping. Um, we, we felt like we kind of did that this summer, and uh, it's kind of weird. But um, we enjoyed uh, good teaching and so appreciative of, of local churches, even around here, uh, just so blessed uh, to know that there are uh, faithful pastors and uh, preaching the gospel, and uh, so thankful um, for that. And time with family uh, could go on and on and on. It, it, was, it was just refreshing. And we're so thankful uh, to everybody here for that time. Um, yeah, a true blessing, true blessing. And so thankful, uh, so thank you this morning for, for time away. I did miss you. Uh, my family missed you. I, I can't tell you how many times when we go to a different place, uh, Eliana, our youngest one, would say, hey, I want to go back to my class, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they would say things like, well, this, this was fun, this was good, but when are we going back to the Ridge? I mean, I can't tell you how many times we got that. And so just so thankful uh, for everybody here and uh, to be back this morning. Um, I want you to do this this morning. I want you to think about the last 365 days. I know that might be kind of hard, but I want you to just kind of think about that and how different our world is. I want you to even come a little closer and to think about since the beginning of this summer, when school let out the first week of June, over the last 11 weeks to today, how different our world is. Think about all the things that, that have changed. The shooting of nine dear brothers and sisters in Christ at Emmanuel Church there in Charleston, South Carolina. The stirring up of issues around the Confederate flag. The White House over the summer was illuminated with the colors of the rainbow to give its agreement to the ruling by the Supreme Court in favor of same-sex marriage. Did you ever thought, did you ever believe that that would happen. We had a couple interesting experiences over the summer as well, just reminding me and my wife how ever-changing our day is, where we're walking down the boardwalk, or not the boardwalk, uh, the river walk in San Antonio, and it was sun was still out, we were walking in, in you know, it's one of those things where on your vacation, you're, you're kind of like, hey, we're just enjoying this, we're enjoying this, you know, you want it to be restful, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we encounter something that we didn't expect we would encounter, not that I haven't encountered it before, but 
for my kids to encounter it was something different, just a, a, a transsexual uh, on the uh, river walk, and, and he actually gave us directions, and so he was very helpful, but, but, but walking away from a, a man who was cross-dressed and all this kind of stuff, and walking away, and my kids just going like, what in the world just happened, what the, you know, and, 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 and you know, kind of humorous too, but then heart just broken a little bit too, and, and all this kind of stuff where you're like, whoa, 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 and it broke in over humanity, and then we had an incident at a restaurant here locally where Eliana's potty training right now, and so that's a fun adventure, and so Annette took Ellie to the bathroom with, with our daughter Grace as well, and she came out, and I don't know if I told you this, Annette, you look like you saw a ghost. I don't know if it was because how bad the bathroom was or, or what, but she came out, and then I remember she said, okay, you need to take Ellie to the bathroom. So I took Ellie to the bathroom, and as I was leaving or going into the bathroom, a, a lady walked out of the bathroom. I'm like, oh, oh, all right, that's interesting. And so, and then when I got back, I told Annette, she said, well, that's, that's what I was eventually going to tell you is when I went to the girl's bathroom and realized that the, the bathroom was just a wreck, and, and I didn't want to put Eliana down, and, and it's a little too much for you. And... She said, a lady came up and said, hey, what's wrong? And she said, Annette said, well, it was gross. And she said, well, that's okay. And, you know, I'm transgender, so I'll go to the men's. And my other daughter's standing there like, you know, what? Just confusion. And, and just thinking through just the day and the world we live in and what is before us. The brokenness. And then the video that no doubt many of us in here were disturbed by involving Planned Parenthood, selling the human parts of babies that are aborted. Then no doubt the continued threat of terrorism abroad, but also here with ISIS and so on. And so you could sit back and say, wow, just think about the last 11 weeks and how fast and how evil just seems to be rising all around us. We see it. We can feel it. We see lawlessness increasing and immorality doing the same. We see an indifference to God. In the midst of such an ever-changing nation and world, I want to tell us today we, we don't have to fear because when we start reading and thinking through all those things, no doubt anxiety starts rising up and our nerves can get shaken and, and fear can set in and hopelessness can seem to rule the day. But I want you to hear today, we have an unchanging, everlasting, eternal hope that cannot be shaken. And over the next three weeks, what I would like to do is I would simply like for us to look at the gospel one of the things that I was encouraged from the beginning of the break till all the way to the end and really couldn't shake it was this thought that we need to understand the reality of the gospel continually. We need to understand two mindsets, we'll get to that next week, that wage war against the gospel, even in us, and we'll talk about that next week, where we can be prone to these things. And then I want us to see how the gospel is not just this entry door into salvation, but it is truly where as believers we get our daily living from. It's not like we move on to something bigger and greater because there is nothing bigger and greater. It's where we get our daily living. And then lastly, how do we communicate such good news to a world that is so indifferent to God? How do we do that?
and just simply look at those things over the next few weeks. And so what I want to do today, if you'll turn to Genesis 3, take your Bibles. There's pew Bibles there for you. There'll be no verses on the screen for you whatsoever. Uh, So you have to look at the Bible. Uh, Look at Genesis 3, and we're going to walk through this. We've got some time, uh, and I want us to walk through this, a familiar text But we see it in our day-to-day, and we see it, obviously, here in this text today, an assault on God and his character. D.A. Carson, a great theologian, wrote a book called The Gagging of God. I have not read it, but we are definitely seeing in our day something that he spoke about, where a pluralism and the gospel relativistic tolerance is impacting the lives of so many today around us, and even in the church. And so this assault on God and his character um, is seen all the way back here in the fall, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so when you think about this text this morning, obviously the precursor to this is Genesis 1 and 2 where we see God Almighty. He's the creator of all things. And he created all things for his glory. And the pinnacle of his creation, we read this in Hebrews 1, we see it in Genesis 1 and 2 as well, is man. And he created you and I to enjoy him forever. And that's really the good news. That's the good news of the universe, that almighty God has made you and I to know him and enjoy him. And there's nothing better. There's nothing better than that that could ever be offered to us, than to know God, our creator. And so we see that, but we know what happens in Genesis 3. We, We know that everything seems to change. And so what happens? The first thing I want us to see this morning, these first few verses, is that the trust relationship that was present in the garden between the man and the woman and God is attacked. It's attacked. And so look at Genesis 1, or excuse me, Genesis 3.1. It says, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, in Revelation 12, 9, we, we, we get some help here. And then Paul also mentions this in some of his writings uh, of who the serpent is. And we know from maybe past experiences or study, um, but Romans 12, or excuse me, Revelation 12, 9 says, The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And so here you have, you have man, you have woman, You have God's presence, obviously, here in the garden. But here you have this serpent who has been perverted uh, for the purposes of the enemy. The enemy, Satan, a fallen angel, uh, has already fallen. Uh, We read that in places like Ezekiel 28, uh, Isaiah 14, and he has fallen. And here we find he comes and deceives the serpent to use for his purposes, And the serpent says to the woman here, indeed, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Uh, We know that is not true, right? If you you go back to Genesis 2, 16 through 17, what does God say? God says, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. And so here you have this, this freedom to enjoy all that God has created. But there's this one exception. There's this law, the first command that God gives. He says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Actually, there's another command in Genesis 1 that he gives. So there's the first law that he gives. He says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you do eat from it, you will surely die. So what's the attack here? What's Satan trying to do? He wants the woman to see 
that God is restrictive, that God is not generous. But if you think about it, God didn't begin that way. God didn't begin telling them what they couldn't do. He, he told them, this is what you can, this is what you get to enjoy and, and enjoy greatly. And then he gave them the one thing they could not do. And so God wanted man and woman to enjoy the garden, but Satan is attacking the character of God. Now look two and th- at two and three. The woman said to the serpent in response, this crafty, cunning, in a negative way, the enemy trying to deceive her. Listen to what she does in response. From the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. She was right. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has says, you shall not eat or touch it or you will die. She corrects the enemy, but in her response, there's a couple things I want us to notice here. What name does she use for God? If you look how Moses speaks of God In Genesis 1, 2, and even places in in chapter 3, God is referred to as Lord God, Yahweh. It's the name of God. It's the holy name of the one true God. But the enemy comes on the scene in verse 1, and how does he refer to God? Just simply God. And so what we have here is a depersonalization of God. You see, Yahweh, Lord God, is the covenantal name that people would use when they spoke of God. And what does Eve do? Eve starts following down this path of using the same depersonalization of God. We we kind of see a change here in the use of the name of God that she is using. And then second, what does she say? It seems like she adds something here. It says that you are to not eat, but we don't see that you shouldn't touch it. Eve says that's added. Now, we don't know for sure Adam could have told her this, and so she's, she's listening to Adam. It could also be her way of just kind of adding a rule in. And do we not do that sometimes? We kind of add things to it, regulations and rules to to spirituality. Who knows? Maybe God allowed them to be Tarzan on the tree, but not just eat of it. We don't know for sure what's going on, but it's very interesting here that she says not only not to eat of it, but even you cannot touch it. But she does understand you will die. You see the severity here. You disobey and death will come. And then the serpent says to the woman in response, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so again, Satan says God in his word cannot be trusted. The great liar says God cannot be trusted. Surely God did not say you would die. This idea of death that God spoke about in Genesis 2 and then here in Genesis 3 what is being talked about and obviously Satan is lying about refers to really three different types of deaths that we're aware of, right, that we know. Physically, one day we'll be separated from, uh, our body will be separated from our soul. We know that death is coming. We know second that when we die spiritually, Um, We're separated from God, and obviously that's going to be experienced here. And then lastly, we'll die eternally. Those who, without Christ, die eternally and permanently separated from God forever. But here the enemy says, surely that won't happen. Surely that won't happen. If you eat of the tree, 
Instead, what does Satan seem to, to kind of be promising here? I think he seems to, to be promising that disobedience, stepping outside of God's will, will be liberating. That you'll find a new kind of freedom that otherwise you would have never experienced before. So let's pause for a moment. Hit, hit the pause button. We're to step back and, and think through some things. And I want us to think through something that uh, theologian Sinclair Ferguson says and points out about the original command back in Genesis 2.17. We've mentioned it where God says, do not eat the fruit from the tree. You think about that. God did not tell them why. Sure, he said, if, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. He said that, but beyond that, there is no more explanation. And so this lack of explanation was a call to something. And this is important. It, it was a call to obey God out of a love and trust in him for who he was in himself. And Satan was attacking that. And so the command sought not merely this behavioral compliance, but this attitude and this personal relationship to God with trust and innocence that was present there in the garden. And you see, that's the good news that rings throughout the universe from the heart of God is that you can have a relationship with God. You can know the creator of all things. And Satan here wants to attack that. And so the enemy here in Genesis 3, 5 wants the woman to see that God is restrictive, that he's keeping something from her, that he's not generous, that he cannot be trusted. And so he tempts the woman to disobey so that she can be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the lie that Satan brings in to the fabric of our society, that you can be your own God. That was at the, the core of his rebellion, believing that he was a God and, and could be greater than God. And it's the lie that you and I and our world, we can be tempted to believe that we can be our own God, that we can define our own morality, that we can define our own truth, what is right and wrong, that we can be our own authority, that we don't have to have any accountability. And we see it continuing today. Peter Watson, in his book, The Age of Atheists, How We Have Sought to Live Since the Death of God, says, there are those who may not necessarily be atheists today, but who do not feel part of any particular religious institution or even tradition. And so there's this name for them today. If you read uh, people like Barna, George Barna, there's a phrase in today's uh, culture being used, especially in the Christian culture, uh, of the nuns. And I, I don't mean in you N-S, I mean N-O-N-E-S, where people have today no um, background whatsoever of religion, any type of, of tradition that speaks of any moral framework whatsoever. And, and so there's none, that there's no experience whatsoever of any kind of spirituality or even any type of religion. And he says in this book, Peter Watson does, is they see no need to explore possible religious solutions to any of their problems. They do not believe people need God in order to have a strong moral framework to aspire for or achieve greatness or to simply have a full and happy life. It's absent. It's the day we live in in our land. 
And so the enemy here wants the woman to believe that she can be her own authority. That, that she doesn't need God and that disobeying God really is not that bad of a thing. And surely you won't die. And so he lies. He lies basically saying you can be liberated through this disobedience. In Genesis 3, 6, look what happens. The woman saw the tree. She saw that it was good for food and that it was delight to her eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate also. And so the woman, being deceived, begins to contemplate, begins to rationalize, begins to, to think through of the type of a level of experience that, that she could have that she's never known before when she was obedient and trusting God and his grace and his generosity to her. But now she thinks and buys the lie that I can experience something different, something liberating that Satan is throwing out to her. And she's willing and she falls into it. She takes of the fruit. In James 1, 14, 15, we read about the cycle of sin, the same cycle that we see here where James says when each one of us is tempted, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It brings forth a separation between God and man unlike anything else. But what does the man do? It's interesting here. You know, Paul mentions this, that Eve is deceived. He mentions that in his writings. But what does the man do? It seems like the man just, eyes wide open, just jumps in, just jumps in and falls into disobedience. When he was to lead, when he was responsible for authority over the woman, he just jumps right in. And so God, according to his sovereignty, he allows this couple to choose obedience or disobedience. He even allows Satan a chance to test humanity, and they're tested, and they fail. And here, as we know, what it comes into the human race is called original sin. In Romans 5, 12, it says, through one man, sin entered the world, and that's what happens here. As Adam was to be the safeguard for his family, to oversee Eve, he fails in that. And so through him, sin enters the human race. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Romans 3, 23, all of sin, all fall short of the glory of God. And so they bought the lie. They bought the lie, believing that God's character, believing that his words could not be trusted. And I love how Sinclair Ferguson speaks of this. He says this, it's the lie that sinners over history, all of us have bought or we have felt this or maybe believed this in our heart before, and here's what he says. It is the lie of the not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father, that came into the bloodstream of the human race as a default heart condition for us all. It's deep in the human mind, and now at the bottom of our souls, we fail, we, we struggle to trust God and his good will toward us. We struggle with that. And we think, oh, sin and, and another way would be more liberating, even if it means disobedience. And so the effect, where do we see the effect? 
It says the eyes of them were opened in verse 7. As they buy Satan's lie and they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And so at once, they, uh, physically they did not die, but, but spiritually separation comes in and they start realizing that the, uh, the guilt and the shame that now covers them. And so where liberation was promised by the enemy, now what are they? They're in a prison. They're in a prison of shame and guilt. And they're trapped. And so their first attempt is religion, trying to do what man could do and, and covering themselves with fig leaves, trying to attempt to make themselves okay with, with God. And they try to hide. Look at verse eight through 10. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God Almighty among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God is not ignorance of where they're at, but he is just calling them out here to, to speak and to communicate with them. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, the man did, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Over shame and guilt, they hide. They hide. This trusting relationship is lost. Innocence, lost. But what do we see about God? He keeps pursuing. We see persistent grace. He knows what has happened. He's not ignorant of it. He doesn't bail on them. He doesn't say, forget you. No, he goes after them. And then look at verse 11 through 13. The man God responds, he says to the man, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Interesting phrase, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And what's the problem here? Adam doesn't take responsibility. In fact, he blames God for giving him something good. Right? I mean, that's what he said back in Genesis 2. He was so excited about this woman and God's gracious gift, but he has bought the lie that God is not good. And now he has blamed what has happened on God and his wife. Eve, though what she says is true, basically has this attitude of the devil made me do it. And reality is, you and I are responsible. We're responsible for our own sins. They are responsible for their sin here. But we hate to admit it. We hate to take responsibility. Why? Because we hate to admit that we're wrong. We, we're prideful. We have a higher view of ourselves than, than we ought. And we want to act like we have it all figured out. We want to act like we have it all together. But the invitation of, of God is that I want you to come. No perfect people allowed. I want you to come full of your brokenness and your fears and your doubts and your shame and your guilt. And what we read back in Romans 5 just a few moments ago, that when, when we were helpless, God loved us. He showed his love toward us. God doesn't want us just to hide from him 
and try to keep it all covered up and start trying to do all these good things and so on and so on and so on. But he wants us to just be real with him. It's like David in, in Psalm 32 when he talks about his sin and, and when he finally came free to God and said, I recognize my iniquity. And he realized that true liberation, true freedom was found only in God and his grace. And they missed that here. We know what happens, verse 14 and 19. I'm gonna do this just for um, your sake. I'm gonna read through it and just let you hear it, make a comment, and then move on. But listen to what he says. Because you have done this, the Lord God said to the serpent, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, strife, hatred, War between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. We're going to come back to that in a second. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. He says that to the serpent. Then to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he says this, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the ultimate effects, the consequences we see here of sin are seen. The curse that falls on the serpent, the, the curse that falls on every beast, on mankind, on the woman, on the man, and creation. Hatred and strife now comes in. It even messes up this complementarism of, of marriage where you have this loving submission to loving headship, but instead it's replaced now of a wife wanting the reins, wanting to dominate and have desire over her husband in not a good way. And likewise, we've already seen the passivity of Adam present here and his failure to lead. And the consequences of sin hits the woman and hits the man really at the inner core of who they are, the inner nerve of who they are. You think about it, that the pain that comes in with childbirth and raising children that comes in, it hits the core of who the woman is as a wife and a mom. It hits them. And same thing with the man, the inner core of just his activity and his work and providing sustenance and the struggle of that labor, of how much that will be. It hits to the core of who they are. And of course, the promise of certain physical death. From dust we came, from dust we return. And so you hear this, that sin causes death. It causes separation. And so one thing that we can see from this text is when God said, if you do this, you will surely die. One thing that we can definitely see is, yes, he can be trusted. His word is definitely true here. We see what happens as a result of sin. We can see it here. We can feel it today. Over the last 11 weeks, over the last year, it's our experience. It's the ongoing struggle that, that we ourselves face, that we experience even with family members and friends of the struggle of sin and the battle that we all deal with and the consequences of it. It's part of our story. We hate it, yeah, but it's real. And obviously the ultimate separation that comes is in verse 22 and 24 is God will drive them out of 
the garden. And they'll be separated from God. But I want us to see this this morning. There is hope. In a world of, of unchanging or, or ever-changing times, a world where evil is rising and lawlessness seems to be increasing evermore, every day, all around us, from our city streets to the national level, there is hope. And there was hope here, even in the midst of this wreckage, this great wreckage. And look at verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. Just a fun word for you this morning. It means the first gospel. It's the first message of redemption that we find in the scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And so he says to the serpent, he says, there will be enmity, there will be hatred, there will be war, there will be strife but between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The word seed there is, a, is a, just a very interesting word. It's what they call a, a collective singular, which, which basically means this. It leaves room that what is being talked about is a group of people and then also an individual. And so it's the idea that what will be present in the human race is this warring and this hatred toward mankind. We see that happen all the way in Genesis 4. It will affect the family between Cain and Abel, and, and it will just continue from there. And so we see that, how it will affect even the warring between God's people and, and, and his seed and the seed of the enemy and people who follow him. But look at the last part of verse 15. He... So singular there, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The ultimate seed that will come from the woman is Jesus Christ. And no doubt here, it's what Christ, uh, God is referring to. As he speaks of this, a curse will definitely fall on Christ, the curse of man. He will bear our sin. And, and that, according to what it says right here, is the bruising of his heel. And so the enemy will bruise the heel of Christ. And then it says that he, speaking of Christ, shall bruise you, speaking of the enemy, on the head. It's a crushing blow. It's a blow that, that puts an end to the power of the enemies, of sin and death and Satan himself. And right here in the midst of wreckage, which seems like all hope is lost, all innocent and lost, paradise is lost, everything is lost, God comes in and says, hold on. Not all is lost. He keeps pursuing. He keeps showing that don't buy the lie of the enemy, that I'm not generous, that I'm not good, that I'm not a gracious God, that I'm not a God that can't be trusted, that I'm not a father that does not love you. No, he puts the brakes on and says, hold on, let me show you my great love. And I will send my only son to bear your sin, to be striked on the hill, to take the cross, the rugged cross, But the crushing blow will be on Satan's head, not Christ. He will defeat, defeat all his enemies once and for all. You see, the gospel is designed to deliver us from the lie of Satan. It reveals that behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death, 
for us is the love of a father who gives graciously to us everything he has so that we might have a relationship with him. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18. He said, Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. And so through Christ's death, we are forgiven so that our sin, our guilt, and our shame do not keep us from God. And so the gospel love God gives is ultimately the gift of himself. That is what we were made for. This is what we lost in our sin, and this is what Christ came to restore. We can't do it on our own by putting fig, fig leaves on ourselves, trying to perform with a bunch of observances. No, we are called to trust Christ, his death and his resurrection. We're called to repent and believe, to change our thought that somehow we could do it on our own, that Satan's way is better, to change that and believe in Christ. And God takes animals here and he will slew them and he will take the garments and he will cover the man and the woman here. Another sign of his goodness, another sign of his persistent grace that he will clothe us. And for those who believe in him, he will clothe us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God will do it. Salvation is from the Lord. It's his. And he provides it and he gives it as a great gift. And so right in the middle of great records, it seems like everything is lost Hope, hope prevails, and hope prevails today. As we close, we can all probably remember what it was like when we had unbelief in Christ. Maybe it was just a few years ago, maybe it's been decades ago when we were there, but we know now the great reality of God's love. We know it firsthand. We know that he is good. We know that he is gracious. We know his great love in providing Christ. I pray this morning as, as we revisit great loss, but also great hope, that we would overflow with gratitude, that we would overflow with praise to God over these next few weeks as we think about the gospel, as we revisit the hope that we have that is given in Christ and that it truly would be our sure foundation that we can stand on even in the midst of a world that is so changing and so different in the last few months, in the last year. If you're not a believer here today and you're not sure what you believe, we'd like you to take away what is taught today, what was taught, and think about it. Consider what God has done in Jesus Christ, for he is truly an unchanging hope. And if you have questions and thoughts about just what you've heard or maybe what God is maybe stirring in you or maybe some disagreements or doubts that you have or fears, man, we'd love to chat with you and talk with you about that. But God is truly an eternal hope, an unchanging hope in ever-changing times. And we thank him this morning for the great gospel and the great hope we have. Let's pray.